Good morning. <laughs> morning, 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 morning. Thank you very much. So, uh, good morning everybody, everyone here, big welcome, obviously those online, very big welcome to you. Um, as Jason said, my name's Sam, uh, so I'm a trustee here um, at um, uh, Vineyard Sutton. What did I say? No, it's because I've put SVC down here, and then I get in my head around whether or not it's VCS, because Sarah was texting Mick that I get it wrong. So apologies. I'm a trustee here at Sutton, um, and I'm also part of our preaching team, and we are continuing, um, as Jason said, our series on Pivot. Thank you. And today we're going to be talking about, I'm going to be talking about Stephen. Um, now, I've got quite a lot to get through, um, so I'm going to be keeping a fairly close eye on, on, on the time. And actually, in fact, the, the passages that I'm going to be looking at this morning from Acts covers two chapters or 75 verses. So I can sense the concern in Brian. A shiver's just gone through Brian already at 75 um, verses. So I think the best thing to do is to just jump straight into it. So I'm going to pray. But just before that, a few questions. Oh, sorry, I'm just calming myself. Where are you going? Where are we going? Do you know? Are you stuck? Do you even know where you are currently? But first and foremost, where are you going? So Lord, we're here today to meet with you. And in this quiet space, I invite you, we invite you in, and we pray that everything else just fades away. All the other worldly distractions, anything on our hearts today that is not of you, we pray it ceases to be and that we can focus on you and that you reveal to us where we are, where you want us to be. You guide us where we are going. And we pray you speak to us today individually and we only hear what is of you, Lord. Amen. Awesome. So, as I said, today we're going to be looking at Acts, or Acts uh, 6, 7. So, to set the scene slightly, I know most people here will know their Bible, but we're in Acts, so we're after, uh, we're after Easter. So, 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 we've had Jesus' death uh, and, and resurrection, and we're in the book of Acts, and the author of Acts is Luke, the, the, the same author of, of Luke's Gospel, and it's very much seen as uh, a bit of a, a sequel, the, the, the what then to everything that we've read and loved about the Gospel message that we've been looking at. Um, and it starts with Acts 1, Jesus is um, speaking with his, um, his disciples again, the, the, the apostles, and he again foretells the, the coming and the staying of the Holy Spirit. That's something that we spoke about throughout John, didn't we? And when, when, we, when we look at, when we look at the, the, the gospel, um, and then Jesus ascends to heaven, leaving his disciples to, to wait fundamentally for the, for the Holy Spirit. And certainly, at least literally, they didn't have to, to, to wait too long. In, in Acts 6, we see the, 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 the coming and the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the, on the day of Pentecost, and, and all of these um, people converting to the faith, and just this incredible day. So I'm going to address the elephant in the room straight away. We're talking on pivot. We're talking about people that have meet, met Jesus and it's fundamentally changed their lives. So why are we looking at Acts 6 and Acts 7 when Jesus ascended in Acts 1? 
And there's a good reason for this. So with regards to Stephen, we have got someone whose who's GPS, whose who's life focus is so fundamentally on Jesus, the living God, who, who is so laser focused on where he's going and Christ, that he's someone that I really wanted to focus on. And, and, and actually, it's possibly a little bit of a, a, a reverse look at things this morning. We hear about Stephen meeting Christ. It's actually a little bit later, but it's actually through what we know about Stephen within these passages that are so incredible. And there are three pivotal moments, obviously pivotal coming from, from pivot, that, that I wanted to look at today where it just reveals Christ through Stephen's life. And so I'm hoping that uh, that is something that we can really kind of get into and enjoy together. So, so diving straight in. So Acts 6, verse 1. And the words will come up on the screen behind me. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So as I said, within Acts, you, it's, it's the what then, and it's the birth of the church and we see here that Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, is very much seen, understandably so, as kind of like the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit arrives, and it's like, wow. But it's then four chapters later, Acts 6, that we, we come across our first problem. And I almost like to think that this is the true birth of the church. This is the congregation knocking on the doors of the pastor saying something isn't going how we want it to go. I see Jason above nodding and laughing here. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but people are emotional, aren't they? My wife's not here, otherwise I'd kind of be... And people can be difficult. And in the early church, it's a melting pot of people. On the day of Pentecost, we hear of this incredible situation where the Holy Spirit flows in and people from all nations hear the, the apostles speaking in their own tongues. And it just kind of is a great illustration of the fact that this early church was full of people that they couldn't even speak to each other in their, in their late native languages. And they were all being pulled together. And in this amazing conversion, they were selling, selling up their possessions and, and living together and, and coming together as kind of a, a church family. And once you, once you kind of build that thing together, there's going to be challenges. There's, there's, there's probably two things I've written down here that are guaranteed when you get a group of people together over a prolonged period of time. And that's that some of them are going to fall in love, inevitably, and some of them are going to fall out. And we, and we see that in every walks of life. And what we see here is the first big problem faced with the early church, and that's a challenge from the Hellenists, which are likely Greek-speaking Jews from, from kind of further afield. And it very much goes back to the, to the Jewish exile, where um, they were kind of exiled in, in Babylonia. We read about this in the Old Testament. And they kind of spread far and wide. And they have a, they have a challenge. They, they think that they are complaining about the fact that their widows, they felt, were being neglected by the Hebrews, the, the native-born Palestinian Jews speaking kind of Aramaic. And, and they bring this forward. Now, at the time, there were very clear social expectations around how widows and the elderly would be treated. And, and actually, it's, it's still the case in a lot of cultures now, whereby they would be brought together, they'd be brought into the family, and they'd be looked after. And there's, there's actually a lot of teachings, very specific teachings, if we look at Timothy, around how widows are to be treated, and very clear expectations there. But it's, but it's made particularly difficult in this scenario because 
you have this new family that are being pulled together. Um, there, there, there was likely going to have been splits in, in families because of people that were converting to the, to the new faith. Um, they, they had a large group of elderly people because they were getting together in a commune that, that needed to, 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 to be looked after. And operationally, I'm actually doing a sermon where I'm using the word operationally, it was very challenging. And it would have been exasperated by the fact as well that, that Jerusalem would have been somewhere that people congregated to later on in life, maybe like the Brighton and Hove of, of, of these days. <laughs> but obviously it was such a fundamental place for them because it was the temple. So we had this challenge. And the apostles had a problem with dealing with this challenge. And they say it themselves that frankly, they're a little bit busy to, quote, wait on tables. They have bigger things to do in their mind. There are wider challenges. So we see in in Acts 6 verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So how do the apostles go about dealing with this scenario? Well, I've put here and I've underlined it slightly, but impressively, they actually deal with it in a pretty good way. And I say impressively because these are the same guys that we've been, right, that we've been reading about in the gospel of the face palm moments of, of Jesus just being like, oh my word, guys, you, you, like, come on, like, you just don't get it. And they deal with it in a really practical way. And we read about it in, in verses three to six. They said, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Prominus, and then Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So a proselyte is, a, is, is, is not someone that was born Jewish. They, they were converted. They've been converted into the Jewish faith. And these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid, laid hands on them. So there's three things I did here, which is just, I just think, absolutely brilliant. It's, it's one of the times where you just, you just point to with anyone setting up a church, anyone involved in a church, and you just go to it and you're kind of like, this is just a brilliant kind of blueprint with dealing with this. They recognized they didn't have capacity to deal with this themselves. And they asked everybody else to choose people that they thought would be good at the role that needed to be done. They, they, they asked people to appoint individuals who were full of the spirit and who had wisdom. And they thought that fundamentally would be good at the job. And then three, they empowered these individuals to carry out the role. They laid hands on them and they sent them out. So I joke, and this is slightly tongue-in-cheek here, but how on earth can we think that Acts 2 is the beginning of the church? I mean, come on, look at this. We've got grumblings to the senior pastors. We've got people knocking on the door. We've got commissioning of a group of people to go out and do this, laying on of hands. We've practically got the very first rotor system of the Christian faith. I mean, we're only a few steps away from Peter standing up and saying, if you want to know more, go on the app and find out. <laughs> So what really does this have to do with Stephen and what does this have to do with our series this morning? Well, I said there's three pivotal moments in Stephen's life that we get to read about in Acts. And the first is this. Anyone who's been around church more than a few weeks knows that there is a huge amount that needs to happen in order for this to happen. 
whether or not it's car park team, welcome team, teas and coffees, kids, AV, set up, the worship band, the, the, the preaching team, or I shouldn't call them worship band, should I? Worship team. Apologies. We need these things to happen in order for church to actually be run. They knew that 2,000 years ago, four chapters after the very birth of the church. And, it's, and, it's, and in this scenario, it's not something to, to, to do something glorious. It's not something that fundamentally is seen as going to be getting praise. In the apostles' own words, they said it wouldn't be right for them to do this as they should focus on the ministry of the word of God. I, I can agree with that. And not be waiting on tables. But what happens? Stephen says, I'm available. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So why did Stephen put up his hand and say, I'll wait on tables? I don't think that Stephen woke up one day and said, I think it's my ultimate calling to wait on the widows. But Stephen recognised that there was a need and he was someone that could fill it. He said, I'm here. And the next passage, directly after what we just read about, and I think this is absolutely amazing, what happens as a direct result of Stephen putting up his hand along with his individuals and saying, I'm here. Verses 7 and 8, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. When we were talking about, when we were talking about doing this series, I, I had Stephen on my heart, and, and I kind of wrestled with it, and, and I just kept on coming back to it and so I thought I'm going to have to I am going to have to stand up and, and, and talk about Stephen and I read this and just think don't you just want to be a Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people do you ever wonder why you get up early on a Sunday and do team or welcome people in outside the door set up chairs Patiently wait as Pete goes around and sets the chairs up again because they're not straight. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've often wondered that. I, I say, have you, but I've, I've wondered that countless times. We don't or we shouldn't serve for serving's sake. As true now as it was 2,000 years ago, the core reason to serve is to support the spread of the word of God. We, we, we were praying about that in the, the, the prayer room this morning. It was absolutely incredible. To increase the number of the disciples obedient to the faith, to see wonders. John Wimber coined the phrase, to do the stuff. Well, waiting on tables may not be the stuff. But by doing it, we allow the stuff to happen and to see the stuff and to see it come to fruition. And who was there to put up his hand and say, I'm free? I'll do it. Stephen. So why did Stephen volunteer to serve? Why does Stephen, why is Stephen described as a man full of God's grace and power and the fact that he performed great wonders and signs among the people? 
what I've got here, and again, we're going to go back to the elephant in the room, but it's because Stephen has met with the living God. We don't get to read about Stephen meeting Jesus in the way that we read about the lady and her perfume or, or Zacchaeus or, or Nathaniel. But we can see in everything that he stands for that he must have done. I use a really stupid phrase at work, and, it, and it's, if it clucks like a chicken and walks like a chicken, it's probably a chicken. And, and I use it with my team when... The, the type, I'm not going to bore you with the type of work we do, but fundamentally we have, to, we have to look at things and then we have to consider what it's telling us and, and make decisions. And there's always a risk that you take your own perception to something. And so a team member will come to me and we expected something to be X and they go, we've looked at it and it's all pointing to Y, but you know, we know it's X. And it's kind of like you sit down, you have this conversation with them and say, well, if it looks a certain way and it's pointing to a certain way, we might have to, we might have to change our opinions here. You aren't filled with the Holy Spirit and you aren't the person that Stephen is unless you've met with Christ. Stephen was a well-educated Jew. He knew his stuff. We're going we're to hear about that in just a second and all the evidence of that. He lived in and around Jerusalem. Well, that's certainly the expectation given where we are in this part of the story. And there's Jesus during his ministry spent a lot of time speaking to people. Quite a few thousand. We get to read about that. There's a strong possibility that Stephen witness Jesus in person, but actually it doesn't matter. And actually I like to think that maybe Stephen didn't and he met Christ in the same way that I have. And that's through sitting down and finding him through conversations with other people and, and scripture and that inward looking and, and, and the quiet words on dark nights. I can imagine him sitting down with the other apostles and being like, what was he like? But it, none of this matters. How he met Christ doesn't matter. The important thing is what he did after that meeting and how it changed him, changed what he was doing and changed fundamentally where he was going. Excuse me. There's a shown juice that was provided by our amazing teas and coffees team. Thank you so much for what you do. Has anyone here got any experience in navigating? Uh, yes. I, I have very little. I was a cub, I was a scout, so I had to do a little bit. One of the times where they'd throw you out of a van with a map and a compass. And then you'd, uh, you'd try and find someone's house that lived locally, sit there for a while, drink cups of tea, and then beg his mum to come drive you to where you needed to be. But anyway, that was not supposed to happen. <laughs> when you're trying to get somewhere, what is fundamentally the most important part, the most important question to start with? Where am I? I was kind of like, I don't know if people are going to get this. Where am I? What's the second most important question? Where am I going? You need a point of reference in order to get anywhere. You need to know where you are going and fundamentally you need to know where you are. And without those two things, you are lost. You need a point of reference. Old travelers used to use things like the North Star or the Sun or landmarks when they were available and eventually a compass that had a reference point to Magnetic North, wherever you were. 
And a lot of people are kind of in the congregation going, what on earth is a compass? <laughs> so when you take out your phones and you use GPS and you turn around to me and say, oh, but I don't need this point of reference anymore, how many times in London do you see someone doing this? Your phone can tell you where you are and your phone can tell you where you're going. But unless you know what direction you're pointing in, it's useless. Otherwise, you start walking the wrong direction and then you have to take the long route back so it doesn't look like you were so obviously going in completely the wrong direction. <laughs> Life in faith is no different. We talk about pivots, people who've met Jesus and it fundamentally changes them. But why? Why does it change us? Why is there this pivot? Jason's spoken about it. It's literally changing direction. Well, number one, we've heard, haven't we? The love the lady had with her perfume had that she had no other choice but to just break it and just anoint Jesus right there. Nothing else mattered. Or the fact that Nathaniel profoundly meets someone that he's been looking for. And he's just like, yes, I'll follow you wherever you go. Or Zacchaeus, someone who just needed to be seen and had this opportunity. And on being seen, someone turned around and gave him another path that he probably didn't even know was an option to him. Because he was so far down the one that he was on. When you meet with Christ, there is... And we're talking about in this series, there's a power that means that there's, you don't really have an option here in these scenarios. But importantly, point two is we're told to. In Matthew, we hear about the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment in, verses 30, in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Great Commission, a little bit later in Matthew, verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Once you meet Christ, we know what our standing orders are, aren't they? We, we, know, we know what we've been told and, and, and this inspiration of, of how to get there. And we see Stephen living and breathing this, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, serving widows and seeing people come to faith and seeing great wonders. It's just like Stephen's like, yep. <laughs> and what happens? What happens to Stephen? Well, as true then as it is now, in times of great faith and wonders, and when you start to do the things that you're supposed to do, and I quote, opposition arose. And it always will. And Stephen finds himself in front of the synagogue of the free men. And in Acts 6, verses 11 to 13, it said, They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought them, him before the council and they set up false witness and said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. So the temple and the law. 
Does this sound familiar? It should. There's so many parallels between Jesus' trial and Stephen's. But, but importantly, Stephen is actually tried for two things, very different to, to, to what Jesus was on trial for. And those are one, speaking against the law and speaking against the temple. So Acts 6 ends and Acts 7 begins. And, and this, is a, this is a passage I've, I've spoken before um, about Bible verses that to me just like stand up and just slap you in the face. Like in a loving way, of course. But just, just, they just shake you and you, they, just, they just always on your heart. And, and Acts 7 for me is one of those. And it's a scenario where Stephen on trial stands up and delivers probably the most powerful monologue that I've read. And I, I really do. I... I toyed with the idea of, of, of reading it word for word, and there's two reasons why I didn't. One, I probably don't have a powerful enough and emotive enough voice to do it. If anyone here was on the Good Friday service, Bev is your person for that. And, and two, it would have taken a little bit of time. So I've summarized it here, but Stephen stands up in front of these charges and boldly declares these things, and he runs through like this amazing history of the Old Testament. And he, and he starts with Abraham, as you would, and the covenant he had with the Lord, who promised to give him an inheritance and, 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 a, um, and a land, and despite the fact that he had uh, no children. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham then becomes the father of Isaac and circumcises him on the eighth day, and then Isaac becomes the father of Jacob, and then Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And then Stephen says, and then one of those is, is Joseph. And obviously we know Joseph. He's the guy with the Technicolor dream coat that we've seen on the stage shows. Jason Donovan, for anyone who truly, truly wants to know. <laughs> and Joseph is sold to Egypt by his brothers, as we know this story amazingly well, but rescued by God and finds himself eventually becoming this important leader within Egypt. And his brothers eventually go down with the, his father to, to, to Egypt. And then Stephen talks about Moses. So as the time of the promise comes near, which God had promised to, to, to Abraham, the, the, the Jews, the people, are increasing in number within Egypt until there arose a, a ruler, a, a pharaoh, or a king, who dealt shrewdly with the Jews, who, who had, was resented the amount that they were growing and, and, and so put into place... Um, he killed the firstborns and, and he was really trying to, effectively we talk about slavery, don't we? But Moses, through this, circumcised, was, finds himself in a position where he's adopted as Pharaoh's daughter into the household of, of the Pharaoh. God's certainly at work here and Stephen's just like, bang, this is what happened. Dish, 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 dish. And then one day he's walking around and he sees his people being treated harshly and it ends in him killing an Egyptian. And that's not the moment that he flees Egypt. It's actually when he goes back to those individuals and they reject him and they say, who made you king of us? And then he flees Egypt. But he meets with God again at the burning bush and he's invited to, he's told to go back to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And it's just like, well, a summary of the Old Testament, certainly a part of it. Stephen, Acts 7. And then Stephen stands up and he says, but despite all of this, the people continued to reject God. Acts 7, 39 to 41, it's a story we know well. Our fathers, Stephen's saying, our fathers 
refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And for, this, and for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Despite all of this, we, we still rejected God. But God didn't reject us. In fact, he, he, gave, us, he gave Moses directions to, to create the, the tent of witness where, where he could actually meet directly with the Lord, where God dwelt. And then 45, 47, Stephen says, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua, the the, the tent, and when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers when they were given the promised land, so it was until the days of David who found favour in the sight of God and asked us to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him, the temple. I just love the fact that Stephen's standing up there and goes, hey guys, look, you're, you're accusing me of stuff, but I kind of know my stuff. Like, this is it. And up until this point, I always imagined the, 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 the Sahedrin, the, 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 the people that had put Stephen on trial, being like, he's speaking truth. I mean, have we got the right guy? All of this makes sense. And then, bang, Stephen turns around in verses, verse 49. He says, yet the most high God doesn't dwell in a house made by hands. Okay, then everyone starts looking around. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and who you you received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. Wow. Stephen stands up there and says, you've missed the point. Jesus came and you didn't change. You haven't met him. He doesn't live in a temple. Jesus came to replace the temple. You stubborn people, stiff-necked people, you are literally refusing to turn and look elsewhere. This pivotal moment in which Stephen stands up and says, I'm going to tell you what it's all about. I'm going to rebase all of this. You say I'm against the law. This is where the law came from. You say I'm against the temple. This is the reason for the temple. And it all pointed towards the coming of the righteous one. And he came and we met him and we've changed. And you haven't. You haven't changed. Pivot. (laughs) He stands up. It's like the GPS recalculating. Where are you going? That's why I wanted to speak about Stephen this morning. It's the message that turns around and says, he changed everything. And Stephen says, and he's changed me. So last point, pivot three. Stephen then meets Jesus. So how do they respond? Well, these are pretty powerful words from Stephen, and I mean, they're pretty direct and cutting. And you... People responded possibly in a way that you would expect, but anyone who knows their Bible knows that Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian faith. In verses 54 and then 57 to 58, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now 
Stephen stands there in boldness and delivers this and says, this is, this is, this is what I stand for. And he dies because of it. Has anyone seen Pirates of the Caribbean? You didn't expect that tangent, did you? No. <laughs> the main character, Captain Jack Sparrow, owns a unique device. Can anyone tell me what it is? A compass. A compass. And what's special about this compass? It holds, uh, so the compass points at whatever he desires most. Ah, see, come here for deep theological thinking. <laughs> Walk away with pop culture. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> a compass that points to whatever your heart desires the most. Have you ever wondered what your compass would point to? Because I, I tell you, I have. We spoke about James, didn't we? I spoke about James and, and, and the challenges of worldliness. Jason spoke about it earlier today. A compass that always points to what the heart desires the most. Have you ever met someone who's, who's lost? They don't know where they are. They don't even know where they're going. They're afraid. They are just completely, I mean, I can't describe it better than just lost. They're downbeat. They're downtrodden. Have you ever met someone that knows exactly where they're going? Who they are, what they're doing? I've met people like this. I'm, I'm not going to name people in, 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 in the congregation because then I'll just feel bad about not naming others and I'll end up naming everybody. But it's amazing when you are next to these people that are so fundamentally focused on where they are, what their lives mean and where they're going. And this is about our journey now. We're doing in small group the Pilgrim's Progress which talks about the, the, the life journey of, of the Christian faith. And it's about the here and the now. But it's really profound and brought home when you meet someone towards the end of that journey. I had the privilege of, of praying with my, my nana, um, Margaret Alp, member of this church for a number of years. I prayed with her a couple of days on, 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 in her hospital bed before she passed away. And what struck me, and it was what Jason shared at the funeral, was the utter confidence in... Margaret knowing where she was going. And it's profound at the end of life. And then you step back and you reflect on how clearly that had been lived through her life. This series is about meeting Christ and, and, and turning. And it's, it's not a one-off thing. It's, it's a continual thing. And in all of this, we're faced with this, just wrapping up. And all of this anger and brutality faced by Stephen, he knew where he was going. And he's at absolute peace. And we read about these beautifully in these passages. So verses 55 to 56 and then 59 and 60. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. If we could have the worship team back. 
Stephen met Jesus and it changed the whole direction of his life. He wasn't born one day and said, I want to wait on tables. But through it, he saw amazing, wondrous things happen full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then on his, as he was dying, he, he meets Jesus. And Jesus isn't sat at the right hand of the Lord like it's said in the scripture. He's standing. He's welcoming Stephen. He's virtually giving him a round of applause. Stephen met Jesus and knew exactly where he was going. And we were invited to that. 